We live in a world that idolizes human beings, a world that idolizes athletes, idolizes entertainers, idolizes politicians. And when we are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a tendency to bring this practice into the church. Where we once idolized athletes or entertainers or politicians, we have a tendency in the church to idolize the ministers of the Word of God, the the, the preachers of the Word of God, the, the leaders of the church. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth who had done this very thing. And they lived in a culture that idolized the philosophers, the, the orators, the great speakers of their day. And when they were saved, they brought that into the church. It just looked a little different. Idolizing Paul, idolizing Apollos, idolizing Cephas, and so forth. And our passage shows us how very dangerous this is. To idolize the ministers of the Word of God. To exalt the leaders of the church. We will see it actually stunts your spiritual growth. It really is a serious issue that, that Paul addresses head on uh, at the, almost the outset of this great epistle that he wrote to the Corinthian church. It's a passage that we need to hear, a passage that informs us how to think biblically about ministers of the Word, how to think biblically about the leaders of the church, how to think biblically about the church itself. And so it is uh, with hearts that, that want to, to know the truth and to think according to the truth that we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 9 this morning. I'm going to read uh, this now, so I would ask that you would stand in honor of the Word of God if you are able. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 9. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. I have provided in the bulletin an outline that shows you where we're going this morning. I do encourage you to take notes there. And you will find on the backside questions uh, for discussion. Uh, discussing the sermon with others. 
And I, I would commend to you our online fellowship group uh, that meets on Sunday evenings to discuss these very questions. And there is some information about that in the bulletin. In this uh, text that I just read, the Apostle Paul returns to a problem that he addressed back in chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. So I want you to go back to chapter 1. Uh, let's remind ourselves of verses 10 through 13. In verse 10, Paul said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The problem that Paul is addressing is the problem of party spirit in the church. Party sp spirit is the division of the church into different rival parties, each flocking around and exalting a different church leader. Corinthian believers were exalting their favored church leader in order to exalt themselves for aligning with or being connected with that leader. Before being saved, the Corinthians had done the same sort of thing with the professional orators of their day. The Corinthians in the church compared their church leaders to one another, not according to doctrine or faithfulness, all the church leaders that are mentioned here, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, uh, they taught the same doctrine. They, they all were, were faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in their ministries. The Corinthian believers, uh, they were not comparing church leader to church leader in terms of doctrine. They were not comparing church leader to church leader in terms of, of faithfulness. No. The, the comparisons were based on worldly standards. Like, who is the most eloquent? Who has the best personality? Who has the best style? Likely, the Corinthian believers were boasting in their connection with a church leader in order to try to get their way in the church. I'm of Paul. I was saved under his ministry. So you need to listen to what I say we need to do. You're not of Paul. I'm of Paul. Listen to what I'm saying. You can see how that would develop. Now Paul has given us the antidote for party spirits. The antidote is the word of the cross. And understanding the cross's place in God's purpose. It is the cross of Christ that unites us in the church. The message of the cross strips away every reason for boasting in man and the things of man that we would boast in the Lord alone. The Corinthians quarreling revealed that they were still holding on to some of the ideals and values of the pagan world around them. And they needed their values to be determined rather by the word of the cross. The word of the cross is at the heart of the wisdom of God. And, and, and it is antithetical to the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world is human wisdom. 
a wisdom that we've seen God has purposed to thwart, even to destroy. Paul and the other apostles intentionally did not use the wisdom of the world in their preaching so that the cross of Christ would not be emptied of its power. So the Corinthians' faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but would rest in the power of God. It is by the sovereign, gracious working of the Holy Spirit in the heart of those whom God who calls that they recognize the gospel of Christ to be the power and the wisdom of God. It is because of God that the Christian is in Christ, so that the believer will boast in the Lord and in the Lord alone. Paul has been teaching these things as the antidote for party spirit. If the Corinthians were to let their mindset and values be formed by the truths that Paul has been teaching in chapters 1 and 2, it would do away with their party spirits. It would do away with their quarreling, which was based on human worldly wisdom. Now in our text, the apostle gets back to what these things mean as far as the Corinthians' quarreling is concerned. And as we will see, all of this has a great bearing on our lives. For we can be very much like the Corinthians. We're going to see in our passage two main points. The first point is stop thinking in a fleshly way about your leaders. And the second point is think biblically about your leaders. First of all, stop thinking in a fleshly way about your leaders. Look in chapter 3 at verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, this is a jarring statement, and Paul intends it to be a jarring statement. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, he said, We have received the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul contrasted what he called the natural person and what he called the spiritual person. The natural person is the person who does not have the Spirit of God. While the spiritual person is the person who has received the Spirit. Paul spoke of the Corinthians as being spiritual and therefore able to understand and appreciate God's revelation. In other words, he spoke of them as having the Spirit of God, and therefore, by the Spirit, being able to understand and appreciate God's revelation. But now, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, I could not address you as spiritual people. What does Paul mean in our text? I could not address you as spiritual people. Well, you have to understand that here in chapter 3, as as we read through this, we see that he is no longer talking about what the Corinthians received when they were saved. But now in chapter 3, he's talking about how the Corinthians have been living. In in verse 1, he is talking about his 18-plus month ministry among the Corinthians. He says in verse 1, I could not address you as spiritual people. Though they had the Spirit of God, they were not living in a spiritual way. Their way of life was not being transformed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
Rather, the apostle had to address them, he says, as people of the flesh. Now, he doesn't say as natural people. He used that term natural people back in chapter 1 to speak of those who do not have the Holy Spirit. Uh, Here, he says that he had to address them as people of the flesh. He doesn't say as natural people, but as people of the flesh. As people who were living in a fleshly way. The word flesh has several meanings in Scripture. Uh, Here it is metaphorical and means man's fallen humanness. Man's corrupt humanness. Paul is saying here in verse 1 that he had to address them as people who were living in their old fallen ways. And Paul continues saying that he had to address the brethren in Corinth as infants in Christ. Consequently, look at verse 2. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Meaning that he taught God's word with less detail, with less depth, than he would give to someone more mature in Christ. Now, in the second half of verse 2, comes the apostle's rebuke. Look at the second half of verse 2. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Now, you have to understand that Paul had arrived in Corinth with the gospel somewhere between three to five years earlier than the time that he writes this epistle. And he spent 18 or more months in Corinth preaching the gospel and teaching the new believers. So he has been away from them Uh, for somewhere between a year and a half to three and a half years, during which time other gifted teachers have been teaching them God's Word. So the church in Corinth is somewhere between three to five years old. Yet, Paul says, they are still living like infants in Christ. They are still not yet ready for solid spiritual food. They are still behaving in a fleshly way. They are still, as Paul puts it, behaving only in a human way. Meaning living as if they did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. Now this is a stinging rebuke. Paul calls them brothers in verse 1. He asserts that they are in Christ and that they have the Holy Spirit whom God has given to them, that they may understand and appreciate the salvation blessings God has freely given them. He asserts that they have the mind of Christ, and yet they have not matured beyond infancy. This is a problem. Now, what is the evidence that they have not matured spiritually? Paul tells us, he says, there is jealousy and strife among you. Jealousy is the heart attitude that begrudges someone else what we wish were ours. And strife is an action that results from jealousy and from other fleshly attitudes. You may be jealous that someone else's idea was chosen over your idea. You had an idea for a certain ministry in the church, And someone else had 
And the church had a contrary idea for that ministry. And, and their idea was chosen over yours. And so you're, you're jealous of them because their idea was chosen over yours. Or maybe someone else was given an opportunity that you wanted. Or maybe someone else in the church received attention that, that you wanted. Maybe attention from one of the, the elders. Attention from another individual, a Bible study leader or so forth. Uh, maybe someone else received recognition that you wanted. Uh, maybe someone else succeeded in a way that you have not succeeded. Or has been blessed in a way that you have not been blessed and you are jealous of them. Begrudging what they have received that you would like for yourself. Now, where does jealousy come from? Jealousy comes from a selfish, self-centered heart. And where does selfishness and jealousy lead? It leads to what Paul brings up here in our text. It leads to strife, to quarreling, to bickering, to fighting, dissension, division. And all of this is the opposite of Christ-like love. Think of where Paul's going in 1 Corinthians. Think about chapter 13, the love chapter, where he tells us what Christian love is and what it is not. All of this jealousy, selfishness, quarreling is the opposite of the love that Jesus showed us at the cross when He laid down His life for us is the opposite of the love that we are to reflect as those who have received the love of Christ. And we are to reflect this sacrificial love, a love that humbles yourself before others in preferring their interests over your own. This love that gives of yourself for the good of your brothers, as a reflection of how Christ gave Himself up for your salvation. He gave up His life to give you eternal life. All of these things are the opposite of Christ-like love. They're the opposite of the way of the cross. Remember, the message that Paul proclaimed in Corinth was centered on Christ crucified. And the Corinthians are living as if Christ was never crucified. They're living as if the way to glory is a route that goes in some other way other than through the cross. They've not learned from the cross to give up themselves for the good of their brothers and sisters. To prefer others over themselves is a reflection of the love of Christ. Our jealousy and strife are strongly rebuked in verse 3. In verse 3, Paul goes on and says, While there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Back in the fall, we became corrupt. Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter of the Bible. God had created, created Adam and Eve very good. 
Uh, they were innocent in God's sight, but then they rebelled against God. They transgressed the commandment of God. And Adam was the head of the human race. And as Adam fell into sin, so did the rest of the human race with him. In the fall, we became corrupt. We became rebellious against God, rebellious against His law. We, we turned from God and from our neighbor inward to self. You know, in, in our lives, we are to be turned outward to God in praise and worship. We are to be turned outward to our neighbor in love. But in the fall, we turned from God and from our neighbor inward to self. Self became number one in our life. But in salvation, we are set free from bondage to sin. And we're given a new heart and the indwelling Holy Spirit. In order that we might, in the words of 2 Corinthians 5.15, no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who for our sake died and was raised. That's a purpose in salvation. God has saved you, brothers and sisters, in order that you would no longer live for yourself. That, that's what you used to do. That, 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 that's how you lived when you were in your fallen condition. In your pre-salvation condition. We lived for ourselves, but we've been saved that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who for our sake died and was raised. And who is that? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet when there is jealousy in our heart and strife in our relationships with the brethren, we are behaving in the old, corrupt way. And Paul will bring up in this epistle various ways in which jealousy and strife manifested itself in the Corinthian church. But he brings up just one here in verse 4. Look at verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul... And another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? We saw back in chapter 1, verse 11, that Paul called this behavior quarreling. Now, the first half of this morning's text, the verses that we've just looked at, have been wrongly interpreted by some Bible teachers as teaching two categories of Christians. One category being called carnal Christians, and another category being called committed Christians. Now, the word carnal means of the flesh. The word carnal is used in the King James Version throughout these verses that, that we have just looked at. The, the wrong teaching says that carnal Christians are Christians that are not fully committed to Christ. They have prayed a prayer for salvation, and so they are saved. And though they are saved, they may live like the world their whole Christian life and still go to heaven when they die. Now understand that our text does not teach any such thing. Jesus was clear that to be a Christian, one, one must be fully committed to Him. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, we read, Jesus' words, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus demands 
our whole life. Jesus says that to be his follower, we must give up our life. And in giving up our life, we gain our life. We gain a new life in Christ. He says that if you're going to be his follower, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him unreservedly. This is full commitment to Jesus Christ. Jesus was also clear that a true Christian will bear the fruit of obedience. In Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If you are a true Christian, then because of God's work in you, you will bear the fruit of obedience. Jesus was clear. In our text, in Corinthians, the apostle is rebuking the Corinthians for living in a fleshly, carnal way. He's rebuking them for not maturing in Christ. He shows himself confident that they will repent of their fleshly ways. He shows himself confident that they will mature in Christ. Because the one who has begun a good work in them will bring it to completion. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. If the Corinthians were not to heed Paul's warning in this epistle, and they were to continue living in a fleshly, infantile way, he would be concerned that they have not truly been saved. For he said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So there is no such thing as a carnal Christian if what you mean by that is someone who's saved because they prayed a prayer, but their life has not been changed in any way to be brought into conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will continue that way all the way until they die, and they will still go to heaven. Having lived a life only partly committed to Christ, not fully committed to Christ. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian if we define it in that way. There are not two categories of Christians. All Christians have the Spirit of God. All Christians have the Spirit who is at work to transform us, to make us like Jesus. And God will certainly accomplish what He has purposed to do in us. Sometimes we may live in a fleshly way, a carnal way, in an infantile way. But that's not okay. It's a problem. And that's what Paul is talking about here. It's a problem that these Corinthians have not grown spiritually. Now, understanding of what our text does teach, you and I must examine our own lives. If you have professed for some time to be a Christian, let me ask you, have you matured since the time that you professed faith? Or have you continued throughout the years to be a spiritual infant? Our text speaks of two indicators of a lack of spiritual maturity. 
The first mark of a lack of spiritual maturity is not being ready for solid food. And the second indicator is living in a fleshly, man-centered way. Let me ask you, have you matured beyond a superficial understanding of God's Word? Or are you typically lost when reading Scripture and listening to the preaching of God's Word? Have you matured beyond a superficial understanding of God's Word? Have you matured so that you live in a God-centered way? Or are you still living in a man-centered way? Often jealous of other believers, often having strife with other believers, boasting in self, more concerned about aligning yourself with one of the leaders in the church than aligning yourself with the God whom they proclaim. Our text says this is infantile. Our text says this is fleshly. Does your life show that you are still an infant in Christ or that you have been maturing in Christ? If by God's grace you see that you have been living for years as an infant, let this be a wake-up call to you this morning. No parent is okay with their children living as an infant. And neither is your Heavenly Father okay with you continuing to live as an infant. You must grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ as we are instructed in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. You must repent of the fleshly way that you have been living. You must apply yourselves to the means of grace that God has given for our growth. Applying yourself to, to nourishing your soul with the Word of God. Not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week. Applying yourself to prayer. Applying yourself to fellowship with, with God's people. The Word, prayer, and, and fellowship are all means of grace that God gives to us. That we would grow in Christ. That we would mature in Christ. You must recognize that the path of growth is the way of the cross. The heart of the Apostle's message was Christ crucified. This is the heart of the wisdom of God. And if you are to grow in Christ, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. There is nothing more antithetical to fleshly living than denying yourself. Taking up your cross and following Jesus. Well, let's get back to the big picture in our text. The first half can be summarized as stop thinking in a fleshly way about your leaders. The second half can be summarized as think biblically about your leaders. Let's look closely at this second section, think biblically about your leaders. Look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants to whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul, Apollos, and all other ministers of the gospel are servants. And understand there is nothing glamorous about being a servant. But a servant is exactly what Christ taught that all of his disciples are, including those who are in positions of leadership. Turn back to Luke chapter 22. The Gospel of Luke chapter 22. I'm going to begin reading at verse 24. When we come to verse 24, uh, we are at the Last Supper. 
that Jesus has with His apostles before He goes to the cross. It was at the supper that He instituted the Lord's Supper with the bread and the cup. Now here in verse 24, we read, A dispute also arose among them, that would be among Christ's apostles, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now you already sense how incongruous this is. The night before Jesus is going to be crucified, the night in which Jesus takes bread and says, This is my body, which is for you. He takes a cup and says, This is my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And that night, a dispute arises among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus didn't take the high position, the position that the world exalts. Jesus came as a servant. He came as a servant to give up his life as a ransom for many. He came as a servant to lay down his life at the cross for our salvation. And so Jesus says, let the leader among you be as the one who serves. Since Jesus Christ is the greatest, he's the Son of God incarnate. And when he came, He took the low position. He took the position of a servant. And He served us. He says, If you are a leader in my church, then let you be as the one who serves. Take the path of the cross. Follow after me. And how I have given up my life to serve my people. Let the leader be as the one who serves. Jesus taught that all of his disciples are servants, including those in positions of leadership. Now you can come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. We can understand now why Paul says here, what then is Apollos, what is Paul? Servants through whom he believed. Servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they serve Christ by serving those to whom Christ sends them. All ministers of the word are servants. The doctrines that we preach and teach are not our own discoveries. But they, these doctrines have been entrusted to us by our master in the scriptures. The power which makes our preaching fruitful is not of ourselves. The power is of the Lord We are on the errand of our Master. We are but servants. Now while church leaders are to be respected, are to be honored, are to be appreciated, they are not to be put up on a pedestal. They are not to be idolized. They are not to be made the objects of our devotion. 
And yet that's what the Corinthians were doing. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. They were making church leaders into objects of devotion. Jesus said in Luke 17 verse 10, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. It may be that we believed in Christ through the ministry of another, but that minister was only carrying out the task assigned to them by their master. Verse 5 says that ministers are servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Each has a different task assigned to them by the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And Paul tells us about the different tasks assigned to him and Apollos. Look at verse 6 in our text. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paul is saying that that he planted the church in Corinth. He brought the gospel to Corinth. He evangelized in Corinth. And, And with those who believed, he established a church. Paul planted. Then he says, Apollos watered the church. Meaning that Apollos continued to teach God's word to this young church so that it would grow. Paul planted the church. Apollos watered the church after it had been planted. Paul goes on, but God gave the growth. What Paul said in the first half of our text does not mean that there was no growth whatsoever in the church. People were saved as Paul proclaimed the gospel. As Apollos continued to proclaim the gospel, people were saved. And there was some spiritual growth as God's word was going forth in the Corinthian church. Paul says, God gave the growth. Paul is now saying, why are you boasting, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, when God is the one who gave the growth? Such boasting is misplaced. Which is greater, planting seed, watering seed, or making seed to grow? Obviously, there's no comparison. Making seed to grow is far greater than planting or watering. Look at verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Can you give growth? You can certainly plant You can certainly water, but can you make something grow? Absolutely not. It's God who gives the growth. Salvation is of God. Both justification and sanctification are of God. The growth of the church is of God. All all the credit goes to God. None of the credit goes to man. If we credit man for the growth, then we are still thinking in a fleshly, worldly way. A a merely human way. Let's continue in verse 8. Verse 8, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. We are not to exalt the one who plants over the one who waters. 
nor are we to exalt the one who waters over the one who plants. We are not to form a following around one or the other. We are not to divide into believers who are of the one who planted and believers who are of the one who watered. Because Paul says they are one. They have one master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they have one mission. The growth of the crop to a rich harvest. The making of disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have one mission under one master. However, each servant is accountable for the specific task the Lord has assigned to him. As you see in verse 8, Paul goes on, And each will receive his wages according to his labor. A good master gives his servants appropriate wages for their labor. And when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, who is the ultimate master, he will reward his servants according to their labor. The rewards the Lord will give to his servants will not be based on their success. The rewards will not be based on the results of their service, but rather the rewards will be based on their faithful service. The faithful, hard-working missionary who labors in obscurity for decades without visible fruit will be rewarded far beyond those who with less self-denial, with less effort, are made the instruments of great results. Now, why does Paul bring this up? He's emphasizing that ministers of the Word of God are mere servants. They have received from their Lord a task to do in service to Him, a task for which they are accountable to Him. And he goes on in verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. Where is the emphasis in this verse? The word God's, which is stated three times. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. Even though Paul and Apollo seem to have had very little, if any, interaction, Paul calls themselves fellow workers because they labored in the same field on the same mission for the same Lord. But Paul's point is that these fellow workers, Paul and Apollos, belong to God, just as every minister belongs to God. And he says, you, speaking to the Corinthian church, you are God's field. The Corinthian church belongs to God. They are not Paul's field. They are not Apollos' field. And so the Corinthians are not thinking biblically when they say, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. Who are they of? They are of God. You are God's field. You are God's building. When he says you are God's building, he introduces a, a new metaphor that he will develop in the following verses, which we will see next week. But understand from this verse, verse 9, that the local church belongs to her Lord and to Him alone. The local church does not belong to her leaders. The local church does not belong to the congregation. The local church belongs to her Lord the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is God's. The church is His. The church's ministry is His. Its ministers are His. Understand that every believer, is not, it's not just those who get up to the pulpit 
and proclaim the Word of God, but understand that biblically every believer is a minister of Christ in Christ's church. We read in Ephesians 4 earlier in our service that God has given to the church pastors and teachers and evangelists to equip the members for the work of ministry so that every member would be speaking the truth in love, that each member would be using whatever gift the Lord has given to them for the edification of the body. In this way, the church is built up into the fullness of the stature of Christ. It's not as a small group of the members uh, serve. It's as... The pastors and teachers equip all the members so that all the members do the work of the ministry. All the members do the service that Christ has entrusted to the members of the church. And Christ gives different gifts through His Spirit to different individuals. One may be given a a, a speaking gift, whether it's a gift of teaching or, or proclamation. One may be given a leadership gift. One may be given a gift of, of showing mercy. One may be given a gift of showing encouragement. One may be given a gift of, of service in intangible, material ways. There's gift, different gifts that Christ gives to His church through His Spirit. And the church is built up as every member serves Christ. Using whatever resources Christ has given for the building up of the body. The, building, the body would be built up in love. The love that we are talking about earlier, that's the opposite of the jealousy and the strife. This is God's design for the church. Every believer is a minister of Christ in Christ's church. At the cross, Christ redeemed us. He purchased us with His precious blood, He he freed us with His blood from slavery to sin so that now we would live for Him, our our new Master. We belong to Christ because He's purchased us with His precious blood. Redemption makes us the servants of Christ. Not servants who serve begrudgingly, but servants who serve with great joy. We're we're serving our Redeemer. We're, We're serving our Savior. We're serving the Son of God incarnate. Through the gospel, we were called not just out of, off the road to hell and onto the road to heaven. Through the gospel, we were called into service. Through the gospel, we were called into the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says here in our text... We are God's fellow workers. That encompasses all of us who are believers. All of us who are believers are fellow workers who belong to God. We're not on our own errand. We're not on our own business. We are on God's business. God's errand. That Christ has entrusted to us. And we're serving in a church that doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord who bought it with His precious blood. And so this is the mindset that we are to have, not the fleshly, worldly mindset that the Corinthians had that showed that they were still infants in Christ. 
The reason the Corinthians were still infantile, living in a fleshly way, was that their focus was still in the wrong place. Their focus was still on man rather than on God. Their focus was still on man rather than on our master. Their focus was still on man rather than the one who gives the growth. This is what the apostle is seeking to correct in the second half of our text. Man loomed large in the Corinthians' minds. And when man looms large in your mind, God is too small, far too small in your mind. Do not be fleshly and put me or any other church leader or preacher on a pedestal in your mind. Not only is it offensive to the one whom we should exalt, but it will keep you from growing in Christ. You will only grow when your eyes are fixed on Christ. I and other preachers are only servants. It is God and God alone who is growing our church. It is God and God alone who is transforming lives here. CFC is God's church and His alone. Now, do understand that everything that we have seen today means nothing for you unless God has saved your soul. Paul addressed his readers as infants in Christ who should be growing. But if God has not saved your soul, you are not in Christ. Paul spoke of God giving the growth. But if God has not saved your soul, you do not have spiritual life. Paul spoke of Apollos and himself as servants through whom you believed. What did the Corinthians believe? They believed the gospel which Christ sent Paul and the other apostles to proclaim. That word gospel means good news. And the heart of this good news is Christ crucified. As Paul made crystal clear in chapter 1, the gospel is good news of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is through this message that God saves sinners. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 the angel was sent to Joseph saying, She will bear a son, that's Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. At the very beginning, even before Jesus was born, it was stated, He is given the name Jesus. His name is given by God Himself. He's given the name Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. The gospel is the good news of what God has done through Christ to save men, women, boys, and girls. To save men, women, boys, and girls from the penalty of sin. God is a just judge and He's given us His law there's a penalty for breaking the law of God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's eternal death. That's eternal judgment in a place that the Bible calls hell. The wages of sin is death. The good news is news of what God has done through Christ to save sinners from the penalty of sin. As there upon the cross, Jesus suffered the penalty in the place of sinners. 
The gospel is good news of what God has done through Christ to save sinners also from the power of sin. Sin has had a hold upon our lives, a hold upon our minds, a hold upon our hearts. We have been in bondage to sin. Jesus said in John chapter 8, that the one who sins is a slave of sin. Enslaved by sin, we have no ability to, to walk free of it. We're under its domination, but no ability to save ourselves from its domination. But Jesus came, the gospel tells us, to save sinners, not just from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. To break that power that sin has had over your life. That you might live a new life in Christ. A new life of, of true obedience to God from the heart. The gospel is the good news of what God has done through Christ to save sinners from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and also from the practice and presence of sin. For when God saves an individual through the work of Christ, God gives that individual His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, gives a new heart, a, a new nature, and He begins a work of transformation in the heart, in the life of the believer. To conform the believer in a growing way to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is good news of what God has done through Christ to save us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the practice and the presence of sin. The Holy Spirit not only begins a work of transformation in our lives, but the Holy Spirit also is a down payment, a guarantee. In earnest. A guarantee that God will complete this work of salvation in what the Bible calls glorification. As we read in 1 John chapter 3, that when Jesus comes again for the believer, we will be made to be like Him because we will see Him as He is. When we see Christ, we will be instantly transformed. God's work of salvation will be completed in us so that we will be saved once and for all from the very presence of sin. We will, in all of our practice, in, in all of our, our thoughts, in all of our speech, be made perfectly holy as Jesus is holy in a, in a, a permanent way. And we will live in that glorified state with the Lord Jesus Christ for all of eternity. The gospel is the good news of what God has done through Christ to save men, women, boys, and girls from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the practice and the presence of sin. To be saved, you first need to understand your need for salvation. Jesus Christ, He took the law of God and He brought it to bear upon our hearts as God always intended for it to be brought to bear. Take some of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. And Jesus says that you are guilty if you are angry with your brother in your heart. That commandment, you shall not murder, was not just teaching us what we're not to do outwardly, but also what we're not to do inwardly. We're not to murder other people in our hearts. We're not to hate people in our hearts. 
not to murder in our hearts. He took the law, you shall not commit adultery. And he said, if you lust after another person, you are guilty. Again, the commandment against adultery was not meant by God just to prohibit something outward. It also prohibited something inward. What happens in the heart that leads to the outward act. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, was teaching that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That God's standard of righteousness is higher than man's standard of righteousness. That God's standard of righteousness is a perfect standard, a holy standard. It's a standard that's found in God's own nature. Uh, His his law is summed up in, in the Old Testament as, Be holy as I am holy. And none of us have even come close to that. Just the opposite. We've run the opposite way. Our lives show that they are corrupt on the inside and on the outside. Lives of rebellion against God. The more you get to know God's law, the more you see that you are a sinner in need of salvation. To be saved, you first need to understand your need for salvation. You need to understand that you are a sinner who has violated God's righteous, holy standard and that you deserve God's eternal judgment. And then understanding that, you can understand by the Spirit of God what God has done to save sinners. The most wonderful news in all the world. That God the Father, in eternity past, chose a people by grace for Himself. A people for salvation. All by grace, all by the mercy of God. And that God sent His Son into the world to save sinners. That that God the Son, who is the one through whom all things have been made, the one who sustains all things, that God the Son became flesh, having been sent by the Father into the world, the Son became flesh, He became human. He added to Himself a human nature, not, not, not in some glorified state where everybody just looked at Him and go, oh, this, this is God incarnate. But He veiled His deity as He took on the form of a servant. And so you had very God of very God here in this humble form of a servant. And what did Jesus do during His earthly ministry? Peter says He went about doing good. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He made the lame to walk. He healed the lepers. Many people came to Him from all over the place with all sorts of illnesses and diseases. We're told Jesus healed them all. All who came to Him for healing. He raised the dead, performing all these miraculous signs, far too many for the Gospel writers to record for us. He performed all these signs, these miraculous signs, showing that He is the Son of God incarnate. He is the promised Christ. And showing His nature. He loved sinners. He cared for sinners. 
He spent time with sinners. He showed that he didn't come for the self-righteous, but he came for sinners. Those who are well do not need a physician. He came for those who recognize they need a physician, a physician for their soul. And Jesus, having lived a perfectly holy, perfectly righteous life, doing the will of His Father completely, He laid down His life as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He laid down His life as the propitiation. He laid down His life as a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God that was due us. He laid down His life as a ransom. He paid the price to purchase us out of slavery to sin. He paid our penalty in our place. This is grace. This is love. This is mercy. Jesus bore our sins. He bore our guilt. He paid for them in full, saying, It is finished. He died. His spirit went to be with the Father. His body was buried in a tomb. And on the third day, God raised Jesus Christ from the grave in a glorified state, in a bodily state, physical resurrection. And and Jesus appears to His disciples and He says, Come, touch the, the, the marks from the nails. Come, see the, the, the wound in my side from the spear. See that it is, it is I. He, 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 took, he said, give, give me something to eat. And he ate in their presence, showing he's not a ghost. Physical, bodily resurrection. The, the greatest miraculous sign in all of history. Declaring that Jesus is exactly who He claimed to be. He is the Son of God incarnate. He is the promised Christ And he has the one name that's been given among men by which we must be saved. He is Lord of Lords. And to him rightly every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He rose in victory. And Jesus commands all people to repent of your sin to turn from your sin, to forsake your sin, to turn from your sin to Jesus Christ. Trusting in Him as your Savior. Trusting in Him as your sin-bearer. Trusting in Him as your Lord. Submitting your life to His Lordship to follow Him the rest of your days. The Gospel of Christ promises salvation from sin unto eternal life to everyone who repents of their sin and believes the Gospel, believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And the gospel of Christ glorifies God. For the gospel of Christ proclaims that this salvation is all of God. It is God who gives the growth. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture which rebukes us, which corrects us, uh, which trains us in righteousness. Uh, which informs our mindset. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would enable us to understand what we have studied, including the significance that it has for our lives and how this passage ought to affect the way that we view the church, the way we view 
the, your servants in your church, where we view ministry. Oh Lord, shape us by this passage for your glory. Lord, give us your grace that we might not be stagnant in a Christian growth. But Lord, by your grace, may we be growing daily in the grace and knowledge of Christ. For we know it's not your will for us to stay as infants. We know it's not your will for us to continue to live in a fleshly, merely human way. For you have given us your spirit. You've united us to Christ. And you've given us your great and precious promises. So Lord, by your grace, may you be so working that we would be growing in Christ daily for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.